Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of history and business. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and we have a fun show for you today. Football is back. College football is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, and the NFL's celebrating its 100th season, and fantasy football is actually older than you think. I'm going to talk with our good friend Pete Abitante from the NFL, who is going to share with us how week one went and what the league has in store for its 100th season. But first, let's start with college football and its 150th. The first college football game was played 150 years ago between Rutgers and Princeton on November 6th, 1869. It was played in front of a crowd of 100 people, which was slightly less than the 42,000 people that attend an average college football game today. And Rutgers won the game by a whopping score of 6-4. to four. The scoring system was a little bit different back then, I gather. And each team had 25 players on the field. Interestingly enough, theater students and alumni at Rutgers recently reenacted the game and wore throwback uniforms supplied by Adidas, or Adida. And the reenactment game featured 11 players on each side, which I thought was kind of inauthentic. Why not go ahead and, and, and do it right and have 25 on each side? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they, they couldn't get enough actors and alumni out on the field. Uh, but anyway, uh, this year is also the 80th anniversary of the first televised college football game, which was broadcast back in September 1939. I don't know what the ratings were back then, but a college televised game today averages about 1.8 million viewers, and I'm guessing it was probably a few less than that. And of course, when we think about college football, we think about bowl games. And the first bowl game, as you might imagine, was the Rose Bowl. In 1901, the president of the Pasadena Tournament of Roses Parade wanted a way to promote the town and its festival. The parade already had foot races, polo matches, and greased pig catching. Greased pig catching, of course, was a high-quality entertainment in 1901 America. But the then-up-and-coming sport of football was seen as a valuable addition. So from this idea, the Pasadena Rose Bowl was born, which underscores that business and bowl games were joined at the hip from the very start. And of course, other cities began to follow suit later in the 20th century, and bowl games spread to Miami, New Orleans, El Paso, and Dallas. Were all these bowl games in warm weather cities because they were nice places for the kids to play outside? No, of course not. The bowls were geared towards attracting tourism revenue during college winter breaks. And while college football became big business over the second half of the 20th century, it wasn't until about 30 years ago the Bulls began getting sponsored by corporations. It's funny to realize that 30 years ago there were about 20 bowl games and none had corporate sponsors. Last year there were 39 bowl games and every one of them had at least one corporate sponsor. So, since we're talking bowls, let's segue to the granddaddy of them all, the biggest bowl of them all, which is, of course, the Super Bowl. The first Super Bowl was in 1967 between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers in L.A. The Packers won 35-10. The Super Bowl had over 50 million viewers, which is a ton of people, even by today's standards, much less over 50 years ago. Uh, today, the Super Bowl uh, attracts about 115 million viewers. Uh, also interesting to note that Ford, Chrysler, McDonald's, and Budweiser were among the advertisers, which is interesting because all of them are still advertisers of the NFL and the Super Bowl. 
And Tiffany has made the Vince Lombardi Super Bowl trophy every year since the first Super Bowl. So loyalty runs deep with some of these brands and the NFL and the Super Bowl. And of course, the Super Bowl today is synonymous with innovative and breakthrough advertising. The first ad that most closely mirrors the buzzworthy ones we associate with the Super Bowl today aired back in 1973. It was a Noxzema shave cream commercial with Charlie's Angel star Farrah Fawcett and Super Bowl III MVP Joe Namath. It had not-so-subtle sexual innuendo that concluded with the catchphrase and tagline on screen, and I'm not kidding here, let Noxzema cream your face. I think the ad was creative directed by Don Draper. Anyway, let's move on. But like college football, the NFL's origins are far more humble. It began over 50 years before its first Super Bowl. The NFL started in Canton, Ohio in September 1920 as the American Professional Football Association. So it kind of makes sense that if you have a league called the APFA, you are destined for a rename and a rebrand. That does not exactly roll off the tongue. It's also interesting to note that college football is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, which dates back to 1869, but the NFL is celebrating its 100th season, so technically it's 99 years old. Interesting little nuance there. So the APFA started back in 1920 and had teams in Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, New York, and Illinois. And then indeed in 1922, it rebranded to become the National Football League. And then about half a century later, it later merged with the American Football League to become the modern NFL that we know today and spawned the Super Bowl, which pitted the NFL champion against the legacy AFL champion. And that's how we got the Super Bowl. So to learn more about what the NFL is doing to celebrate its 100th season this year, let's listen in on my conversation with our friend Pete Abitante. Pete has worked at the NFL for about 40 years, so he is literally an institution and the league, and he is currently special assistant to the commissioner and played an instrumental role in planning the NFL's 100th season over the last couple of years. So let's listen to my conversation with Pete. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm fine, Jason. Thank you. This is, uh, let's see, NFL 100 plus five or so, five days after kickoff. So yes, uh, congr- congratulations go. on uh, week one is uh, in the books and. Uh, it was a great week one. It started uh, with uh, not a lot of points scored, but certainly ended uh, with a lot of excitement uh, on uh, Monday night. And Monday well, I night, guess yeah. the, uh, the Houston-New Orleans team, they scored more points in the last minute or two than uh, the Bears and the Packers <laughs> managed in the entire game. True. Um, but uh, congratulations on NFL 100. 
uh, I, I guess for, for most casual fans, uh, this week's uh, games was, was probably one of the first places where they've really seen uh, that the NFL is celebrating uh, its 100th season. Uh, it was fun to see um, some of the fun things that were happening, obviously, around uh, the Chicago kickoff with the, uh, the sportscasters and throwback uh, attire mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, but would love to hear more about uh, how, how week one was a little bit different this year than it is yeah, in any sure. normal season. You know, I think to your point, uh, first time fans came in contact with, let me, let me just say, if they didn't know the 100th uh, was happening this season, they know now because it was all over the place from our network partners to our sponsors and, and licensees as well. Um, but, you know, first of all, there's, there's always a ramp up to kickoff. Each season is a, a certain bit of um, excitement that every fan has. And if you were in Chicago, you really felt it this year. Um, yeah. Because for one, for the 100th, we changed our usual format. Typically, we open up the season on Thursday night of, before the first weekend in the hometown of the Super Bowl winner. And about a year before this even came to this, we uh, asked our broadcasting committee for permission to give, a little bit, give us a little bit uh, broader runway here so that if we wanted to open up the season, if we could, if the schedule makers allowed it and could figure out the right schedule, to open up the season in Chicago since the Bears are the only team celebrating their 100th season. So that worked out perfectly. Um, and playing the Packers, their arch rival, who were in their 101st season. So um, that, that really was something special. We did certain things in Chicago. We've never allowed viewing parties outside the stadium in the same market. We did that in Grant Park outside of Soldier Field. And there was a real electricity uh, going on uh, that Thursday that you could just feel uh, among everybody. Um, And then on Sunday, we continued the Bears part of it. And Virginia McCaskey, uh, who's 97 years old, George Hallis' daughter um, and the owner of the Bears, she agreed to voice over the the intro for NBC. Um, um, for I'm sorry for Thursday night so that Neat. led into the game and then on Sunday we did a simultaneous moment we had seven early games at one o'clock and the idea with that was to bring together the legends and the current so you'd open up with Joe Namath on Broadway and it and it it panned to MetLife Stadium and Sam Darnold and on the field at MetLife and it was different elements of that, going back and forth from game to game for the 7, uh, 1 p.m. starts that day. So it was just a really, you know, it sort of put it all in focus. It gave you this sense of history of old and new um, as you as we uh, launched the new season. So I thought it was great. That's terrific. And it's interesting because obviously the NFL can, can do a lot on its own, but a lot of this I would expect really requires a lot of coordination with your uh, member teams, with your, your partners. Uh, how, how challenging has it been over the last couple of years as you've planned this to get kind of everyone aligned and coordinated, and, and how have the teams responded to that? Yeah, so I mean, well, we we known a long time we've got 32 independent thinkers and independent teams who all have their own way of doing business, even though it sounds like it's a football team and that's it, but that's not the case. Um, and we've thought from the outset, you know, we could have a really good celebration of our 100th 
with the plans we set from the league office. But if we want to have a great celebration, we've got to bring our teams into the fold. We've got to bring our sponsors into the fold, our licensees, our broadcast partners. For this to really be something special, we need to get everybody involved. So we really spent a lot of time on communication to them all. We visited every team and laid out the 100 plan. It was only a, a half hour, and it, the travel took more than the, the time it took to, uh, to lay that out, but that didn't matter. It was the effort to get to them and bring them all into the fold. We presented to all our broadcast partners several times, presented to all our sponsors, to all our licensees. Um, anytime there was an opportunity to speak anywhere, somebody from this, this uh, NFL 100 team was there to lay out the plans that we had for the 100th. So you only get to do it once, and uh, in doing that, you've got to be able to look back and say, we didn't miss anything. We always missed, you always missed something, but we gave it our best shot, and that's, I think we all feel that way. Yeah, and uh, I'm curious, Pete. Have have the I, I would assume the, the the older clubs, like obviously the the Bears and the Packers, who are uh, celebrating you know their hundredth, and I believe the Packers actually celebrated theirs last year. But mm-hmm. um, are were the young are the younger teams also really receptive? You know, the Jacksonvilles and and you know Carolinas of the league have they also really engaged on on the centennial? Sure. Well, you name two teams that are really really set apart this year because they're celebrating their 25th anniversaries, Jacksonville ah. and Carolina. And, look, it's not – arrogance goes on the shelf and all this stuff, right? The 25th anniversary of any team is going to be more important than the overall 100th of the league, meaning their lo- to their local fans. But they've yeah. worked, um, and we've worked closely with them, hand in glove, um, to make sure that they have everything, they know everything we're interested in achieving and, and executing and that they do the same and we support them in their market. So I think um, it's been a good uh, collaborative effort across the board. Um, and you mentioned the Bears celebrating their 100th. We have, what is it, it's uh, the eight original AFL teams celebrating their 60th and the Dallas Cowboys their 60th. Some of, not, a, not one of those uh, resonating in anniversary years, but some of them are doing something with it, and they've incorporated the 100th uh, along the way totally. Yeah, and I, I heard quite a bit about uh, there. There was quite a bit of uh, reference to to the hundredth uh, during the uh, uh, during the Hall of Fame week uh, just you know, mm-hmm. a few weeks back. Uh, I was curious if you had any uh, fun kind of behind the, the story details of of how the hundredth was an element at, at the Hall of Fame week this year. Sure. Well, we we typically our season we say our season starts at Hall of Fame weekend with the first yeah. preseason game there. You know. And one of the cool things that happened there was that we were telling or we've decided to tell our history in a different way. Instead of a documentary type portrayal of the 100 seasons, um, we worked with ESPN and Peyton Manning to create a show called Peyton's Places, a 30-part series to tell our history by going back to iconic places that people will recognize or that something interesting happened and Peyton tells that story in each place. And so at the Hall of Fame, he was very interested in doing a, it wouldn't have been a premiere because the show had already come out, but um, mm-hmm. wanted to do a, um, uh, you know, a session with fans. So we were able to get about 800 fans into a theater in downtown Canton, Ohio, and Peyton showed three segments from Peyton's places, one on the Immaculate Reception, one on a, a throw off a building in um, 
in town in Midtown New York that happened in the 20s. It was a stunt the Giants did, and he did it with Chris Carter. But he had these players on stage. He had Chris Carter for that segment. He had Franco Harris for the Immaculate Reception. And and then did a thing with Joe Namath about playing pool at his home, uh, Joe Namath's home, and talking about Super Bowl three and the I guarantee victory, as Namath did. And so it was a great way to tell the history and a great way in front of all these fans who are diehard NFL fans to show that off. Yeah, that's awesome. I've uh, I've seen a couple of the uh, the Peyton's Places uh, episodes, and uh, I think he's going to give us a run for our money at, at History Factory. So I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping he doesn't get too too into this uh, historian uh, documentary role. He sticks to his knitting and football. Otherwise, we may be in trouble. Uh, but I, I agree. They've been they've been really unique and, and a lot of fun. It's been really cool. Yeah. So so what else? Uh, looking ahead, what can fans expect uh, over the the rest of the season yeah, uh, sure. with NFL 100? Well, each team is we with the History Factory's uh, help. We coined our own phrase for the celebration. And I remember Bruce at one of our early meetings saying that you know you can have some fun with this and you can make up your own word if you need to. And so at the outset. Um, we kept on calling this our centennial celebration, and our club said, hey, look, that's great for the league office to call it that, but we can't sell that in our local markets. We have nothing. It's not our hundredth. You guys can do that, but we can't. So we came up with this term, fantennial, and fantennial really became a mindset of how we're approaching our fans, honoring them, um, celebrating them. And so we've created what we're calling a fantennial weekend in each market for each team. Each team is creating it, actually. It's a three-day celebration of football. Starts with focus on high school football on Fridays, then a fan festival on Saturdays, and then bringing it all together at a Legends or a homecoming with legendary players of that team on Sunday at the stadium. And so that's going to be going on. That started, we had two of them last weekend, and they'll be going on every weekend in different team markets all the way up to week 10, then there'll be one additional one in week 14 with the, the Patriots are doing theirs in week 14. But that's going to be a great time for fans to get together, see legends, etc. And then the content is going to become so much more uh, prevalent as we, beginning this Friday, we're having what we're calling the NFL 100 series. Uh, the 100 greatest games, plays, um, innovators, game changers, um, and this is going to be a 10-part series that runs from um, beginning this Friday all the way through uh, 10 weeks, up through week 11. And then in week 12 through 17, we uh, selected an all-time team with a blue ribbon panel, and that's going to be revealed on a six-part series that begins on November 22nd uh, through the end of the season. And that's going to be very interesting because it's not a – one through 100 greatest players, it's uh, the, 100, the 10 greatest quarterbacks, the, the 12 greatest running backs, and it's all, all the, the position numbers add up to 100. And it's gonna, it'll kick up a lot of dust and interest, and people will be very uh, yeah. into it, and, and the debate will continue. <laughs> awesome. And to to your point, the NFL has so much incredible content to, to work with. Yeah, uh, very lucky. How, how has 
how has the league used its history in the past? I mean, you know, you know, we always talk about how sports organizations are some of the best practitioners of what we call heritage management. And you know, how you mentioned before how with uh, with the Peyton's Places piece, how it was a little bit of a different approach in terms of how you've used the history. But how has the league kind of traditionally viewed uh, the the history and heritage of of, of football? Yeah, so I mean, we have been so fortunate because we uh, NFL Films was uh, established in 1962 by Pete Rozelle and Ed Sable, and so we've got all those years of film, not just games, but all kinds of different shows that have aired, and it still shows up in much of the programming from a football life. Um, that's a series on specific players or coaches. Uh, to weekly shows, and so you have all this material to draw on, which I, I can't imagine what other organizations would do without it. And we have some of the greatest producers that are able. It's all done in house at films, and they're just so smart about it. It, it just makes such a difference. Um, I'm not chest. We're not chest pounding in any way, shape, or form. Just I just admire them so much for what they can uh, turn out and and offer to us. And they offer this, you know, on a daily basis not and, and annual basis, not just this season, but every season for different ways we want to promote the league. Yeah. And, and to that point, how have you found the, the, the sort of impact or efficacy of that kind of content with your, your fans and how they may have changed how they engage with the game over time? Well, I think, you know, one of the shows that's been a breakthrough show um, has been Hard Knocks. I don't know that any – no other sport, I don't think, at the when that started uh, more than a decade ago, of going behind the scenes during training camp, that has resonated with fans so much. Uh, they want to see what happens behind the scenes. That's what every fan wants. They want to know what goes on in the huddle. They want to know what goes on in the meeting rooms. They want to go know what it's like during cutdown and all that. So that's that's been a show that's really um, been very, very popular. And then um, – Everything that films does, I mean, they, they started out doing highlight films for teams. That's why they were basically created, to help promote the teams in their yeah. local markets. And that kept on growing and growing to halftime highlights for ABC, to doing th- something like this um, uh, simultaneous moment at kickoff this year. Uh, and it's almost there's nothing that they uh, can't do, even though they like to say, um, you know, we don't want to do live television. That's, that's too nerve-wracking for us. We're documentarians. But um, it's always something fun and, and with a really good edge to it. Yeah, yeah. It's also it's interesting too how it seems like over time there's more programming that really celebrates the players and how they really think of themselves, sort of mm. generationally as well. You know, there's, I can't True. recall the name of it, but I know one of the, the pieces of content uh, as part of NFL 100 is the uh, is the program where you've got the players that are coming together and having a meal, and it's multi generational players, and so they're getting the chance to meet with their idols, um, which I which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, we we uh, did this series called NFL Generations. That's exactly what you're mentioning. So it was. Yeah. Um, J.J. Watt had never met Brett Favre, and his dream was to meet Favre because Favre, he said, was the one who inspired him to become an NFL player and and to pursue football as a career. And so when they came together, it was just electric, you know, and that's the kind of thing that you 
you say, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. What's been one of your favorite stories or moments thus far as part of the uh, the journey on uh, NFL 100? So I, I, there's a couple of them. I mean, we've we've done this series of, that we're calling um, NFL Experiences of a Lifetime, and it really uh, started as creating 10 or 11 or 12 unique experiences that fans could only get by coming to us on social media and, and uh, connecting and entering a contest for it. And we did one of them that was um, have the commissioner announce your fantasy team draft, the first round of your fantasy team draft. And we got, uh, you know, several, several hundred uh, submissions and selected a, um, a, um, a draft group, a, a team, a team, no, a league, I guess. League is the right term. Um, yeah. From uh, California, just outside San Francisco, who had been conducting their own fantasy draft for 44 years. Most people don't even think of wow. fantasy being allow- around that long. So 44 yeah, years, right. you know? And yeah. we brought them all to New York. It was uh, 12 of them. And they went on and on about how they, they honored the, the, the founders of the league, some of whom passed away. And they went on and on about how this wasn't just a fantasy draft to them. This was a rite of passage. This is where their, their kids, when they were allowed into the draft room for the draft, that was a big deal. That was, this was a family of its own. And so... Yeah. This group just had the best time, and the commissioner had a great time with them as well. He he read off their first round picks. We did it in our our main meeting room here, um, and it was just a, it was really fantastic. And then some of the other stuff that's really resonated. We have this this uh, initiative we're calling the Huddle, which has been to inspire a million people to volunteer a hundred minutes of their time to some community project. And the goal is to, so by doing that, we'll generate 100 million minutes of community time. Um, and so we've done those at all of our tentpole events. We did them at the draft. We did them at Hall of Fame. We did them at kickoff. And each one of them is a different twist on it. But what's the same is that people coming together, enjoying whatever they're meant to do to go out and work and do some community project. And so far, it's generated about 20 million minutes of volunteer time that's uh i think it's got a oh wow it's 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 got evergreen potential beyond the hundredth and that that to me is pretty exciting yeah that's great and of course one of the things we always talk about is how if you can create something as part of an anniversary campaign or celebration that you can then make it evergreen and it keeps on going Mm. beyond the milestone year that you've really landed on something that's very cool Exactly. So, well, you've got you've got so many amazing stories from your your time with the NFL. So, I've always wanted to ask you if you had like one story or two stories you could tell if you were at a bar. If you had to break <laughs> out one of your like top shelf stories that you could that you could share, uh, what 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 might it be? Yeah, there's been there's been a few of them as you uh, suggest, but I, you know, as I've gone through this process, I've said to people the thing that uh, we every organization has objectives and uh, you know that you have to adhere to 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 get the op- maximum value but i said when you when you boil this all down really what this comes down to is it comes down to uh people and passion and 
that to me has just been the difference in all this. We've got so many people to thank and to uh, and people to uh, to really uh, that have benefited and helped build the league. That's what it's all about. And so um, when I think back to the one of the greatest things I was ever at was at the NFC Championship game in uh, 1981. Cowboys and the 49ers at Candlestick Park. And it was one of those things where my assignment for the game was to be on the field. And I can't even tell you, everybody had, there's always phones from the field to the press box, and I was probably manning one of those phones. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't really remember. All I remember was that I just happened to be in the end zone when Dwight Clark was coming across it. And I I've still remember like he was looking me right in the eyes as he went up and, and made the catch from Joe Montana. And then the wow. um, the 49ers go to the – and the place erupting, and it was just bedlam. And So that that's one of the, my great memories. And then the other one's a little bit different because I spent about 10 years of my career um, working international games for the league. And so the Berlin Wall came down in November of 1989, and Paul Tagliabue, our commissioner at the time um, – was um, very internationally minded and, and internationally uh, aligned with uh, with political figures as well, but not in a in a proactive way. But I mean, people came to him and said, you know, the NFL should really go to Berlin. And so he was totally in on that. And and so by April, we were uh, doing a press conference in Berlin to announce that the um, let me think, it was the Rams. The Rams and the uh, Chiefs would play that uh, August at the Olympic Stadium in Berlin, 1990. So it was only basically five months after the wall came down. And uh, Christian Okoye was on this trip with us, running back with the uh, Chiefs. And Jim Everett, quarterback of the Rams, was with us. And some of the we had about 10,000 soldiers still stationed in Berlin. And they said, um, do you think the players would come over and work out with us in the morning? And I said, well, what time is it? He said, well, we do calisthenics about 5 a.m. and then we go for a run. So Jim Everett said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. So I went over with him, and um, we worked out, and then we, I was in better shape than I am today, so I took part in the run through Berlin. And I was running with these uh, two majors, and um, they said to me, did you get a piece of the wall yet? And I said, yeah, I bought a piece down at the Brandenburg Gate. And they said, no, 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 no. He said, that's not it. That's not what we're talking about. We'll come by and get you this afternoon. So I said, okay, not knowing what would happen. you know. So they show up in their civvies in a van, and they take me out to a remote part of the wall with a sledgehammer to break down my <laughs> own part, piece of the wall, more than one piece. And it's got, you know, there was all rebar in and everything, and all of a sudden some guy comes by with a, a, a wire cutter, and, and so I've got this piece of probably 15 pounds of wall in my office that I've had ever since that time. And I brought back pounds and pounds of it in the overhead bin. But Yeah, I mean, right. I'm, a, I'm envisioning a, getting through customs with that. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> that's a strange story to have for somebody with the NFL, but it's really, uh, to me, it's just one of those uh, unbelievable things that, that has taken, uh, taken place uh, as part of it. And it just showed we played five years in the Olympic Stadium, five preseasons. Uh, in the Olympic Stadium, so it just shows you, I mean, the maybe in a way the impact of the NFL and how far it's gone. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a great story. Probably too long, but it's, well, a, it's listen, a good well, we, story. 
Nah, that's great. So, well, listen, can't can't uh, can't thank you enough for for sharing uh, some of your insights. Excited to uh, keep track of uh, how the NFL 100 uh, season unfolds, and uh, I know it's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, so yeah, best thanks. of luck, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so thanks so much, Chase. So Pete just shared that great story of Roger Goodell presiding over a fantasy football draft. And we also talked about uh, the show on ESPN, uh, Peyton's Places, produced by Peyton Manning. And uh, I guess I'll I'll give a plug since uh, the the name of our podcast is plugged in. I'll I'll give a plug for Peyton's Places. It is highly entertaining. And uh, one of the episodes uh, does uh, actually talk about the history and, and origin story of fantasy football. And it was surprising to learn, I didn't know this, that fantasy football actually goes all the way back to 1962 and, in fact, uh, was created by one of the owners at the time, or at least investors of the Oakland Raiders. I won't spoil the whole story. I, I encourage you to check it out, uh, but kind of the, the quick uh, the quick teaser on that is that the Raiders were really not good and essentially they came up with the concept of fantasy football to literally detract uh, their fans from the game that was being played on the field. Um, Of course, fantasy football started to take off much later in the 80s with the beginning of developing publications and then of course with the internet in the 90s Uh, fantasy football really started to take off and then as we all became addicted to our smartphones fantasy football really hit the next level Uh, in 2008 the number of fantasy players jumped from 19 million to nearly 30 million in that year alone in 2017 more than 59 million people played fantasy sports and 80 percent of those played fantasy football So there you have it, the history of football in America. We've gone from 25 players on a side playing for 100 people to the game we know today, and we've gone from radio to TV to our desktops to our phones. But the intersection of football and American business is as strong as ever, and it's going to be interesting to see how football continues to evolve both on and off the field over the next several years. So that's our show. Thanks again to Pete Abitante from the NFL and to all of our corporate sponsors, so many corporate sponsors that we have here on History Factory Plugged In. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Our next episode, we'll have Bruce Weindrick, our big chief, back on to talk about the news and put it in historic context. So stay tuned.